Welcome to Bioethics in the Margins. We are a group of bioethicists from different institutions across the country. This podcast represents our views and those of our guests, but we do not speak for our universities or medical centers, nor for any formalized bioethics organizations. Our mission is to bring marginalized topics and voices into the bioethics discourse. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Amelia Barwise, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Biomedical Ethics at the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Kirk Johnson, Assistant Professor of Justice Studies and Medical Humanities at Montclair State University. Please enjoy this conversation. Today, we're pleased to welcome Arjun Baiju to the podcast. Arjun is a fourth-year medical student at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. He's here to talk about his work on police brutality and the diagnosis known as excited delirium. Welcome, Arjun. Yes, thank you for having me on the show. You wrote this wonderful piece, Excited Delirium, How Cops Invented a Disease, recently for Current Affairs. Can you um, tell us a bit about when you first came across the concept of this excited delirium, as you describe it in the article, and what sort of sparked your interest in exploring it more? Excited Delirium first... uh came onto my radar in 2020, the fall of 2020, um, as a lot of the protests were going on over the summer, um, the wake of um, George Floyd's death and um, Black Lives Matter sort of was back again in the um, public discourse, was paying attention, and uh, it was around that fall that the footage of Daniel Prude's death in Rochester uh, was released. Uh, my fiance goes to medical school in Rochester, and I'm up there for research and visiting all the time. So I, I try to stay tapped into the um, news and uh, happenings over there. So I heard about what happened to Daniel Prude, and I heard that um, the cause of his death, as listed as aut- at autopsy, or at least among the causes of death, was this condition called excited delirium. Um, I had never heard of it, and um, I I had just started my clinical rotations in third year and I had actually just completed my psychiatry rotation and so I was familiar with this term delirium which means um, a certain thing in the world of medicine and particularly in the world of psychiatry but I had never heard of excited delirium so I kind of just started I, I honestly started googling and looking up the term online and I realized that it was really steeped in controversy Um, It's been employed uh, to explain uh, many, many deaths in police custody, uh, but at the same time, the disease entity itself, excited delirium, has been under a lot of scrutiny and is not recognized by a lot of uh, professional medical organizations. So just that that, uh, contradiction in my mind is what stuck out to me, and and that's what uh, led me to dig into this topic a little bit more. So how have people um, kind of come up with this diagnosis as such? What Can you tell us a little bit more about what's included? What are the symptoms or the pathophysiology that they would, would use to kind of denote an excited delirium? Yeah, excited delirium, as, as the term is employed, <clears throat> I think proponents would argue that it is an um, acute state uh, characterized by agitation, um, overexcitement, uh, and is characterized or marked by some sort of noradrenergic or adrenergic sympathetic uh, hyperarousal, 
the history of excited delirium um, is is kind of complex, but it was first as an idea coined and published in the 19th century, um, and it was known as Bell's mania after uh, somebody, Dr. Bell at uh, McLean Hospital, sort of stayed dormant in the literature for at least over a century, and then in the 1980s it was rehabilitated by someone um, named Charles Wetley, who was uh, a medical examiner, a forensic pathologist. And so he was probably the first to really um, cast this diagnosis onto people who had died uh, due to, uh, in, in the context of drug use, in the context of police um, interaction. And so I guess that would be the other piece I'd add is that this uh, so-called disease entity as I described, is characterized by a certain emotional and physical response, but it's almost always um, identified in interactions with the police while people are being detained or arrested, um, and is often understood to arise in the context of um, drug use. In terms of pathophysiology, I, I honestly can't say that there's one one guiding pathophysiological explanation promulgated by those who support the diagnosis. I think they've tried to identify certain histological changes in the brain post-mortem of people who've supposedly died of excited delirium. Certain neurotransmitters um, are supposed to be upregulated in the condition. Um, but I'd but I'd point out that a lot of that has been disputed. Um, but I think that the overall defining features are agitation, uh, acute agitation, and subsequently acute or, or sudden death um, during a police encounter. So you rightly point out in your article that, you know, other groups as well are pushing back against this as being a sort of proper diagnosis. Um, but you also make some other really interesting points um, you know, why are we um, coming up with these labels and assigning them to certain groups, um, reinforcing stereotypes and trying to sort of legitimize why uh, violence may be necessary at times or why police act in certain ways. Um, can you talk a little bit about that a little bit more? You know, what, what I try to do in my publication and what I would like the conversation around excited delirium to to examine further is this idea of what work is excited delirium doing in society, um, leaving aside for a moment the question of whether it's real or not, and I'm putting that in scare quotes, whether it's a proper diagnosis or not, um, how is it constituted and what role does it serve, um, and maybe what is it reflecting back about our society? Um, I say that because there there is controversy. I think personally, I would say I don't believe that it's a, a veritable clinical entity. But you know, I'm on, I'm only a medical student, and I don't want to speak as if I'm an, a specific authority. I would say that the American Medical Association, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, and the WHO, the ICD, don't recognize it but the American College of Emergency Physicians and the North American um, Medical Examiner Organization, NAME, they do um, acknowledge excited delirium. But so I, I kind of wanted to take a step back from that debate, um, is this real or not, and the whole question of defining diseases to, to look at the illness script 
um, and the narrative about the disease. So what struck me as just really uh, troubling was how people who were said to have or suffer from excited delirium were described. Uh, if you look at police uh, manuals and procedurals and even some of the literature from the emergency uh, responders and emergency physician groups, they describe the prototypical uh, excited delirium patient in in really specific language that I think works to ultimately dehumanize the person who's then going to receive a, a taser shock or a hog tie. Um, they talk a lot about this person is will be really violent, they will be like a raving menace, they often talk about the person having diminished response to pain, extreme physical strength, they use the word superhuman strength a lot, and they talk about, okay, this person, the the sort of pathognomonic feature of this disease is that they can't be controlled with regular um, police tactics, and that I, I felt that that was kind of troubling because it basically sets up for an escalated response and escalated interaction from the get-go. Um, and I read a lot about illness scripts. Um, those of those in your audience who are, you know, clinicians and might be familiar with this idea in medicine that you sort of kind of come up with a little bit of a, of a parable of each patient, classic demographic features, classic parts of their history, the chronicity of their chief complaint, um, pertinent positive, pertinent negatives. And then, you know, each illness script has a therapeutic directive. So if we hear about somebody um, who is hiking in the Northeast and has a bullseye rash, you know, you, your mind goes to certain places like Lyme disease. And I talk a lot about crushing chest pain. We have an illness script. We have an illness script for what cholecystitis looks like. But I think all of those build in our biases, our, our, our the prejudices that we have. And I, and I thought that the illness script around excited delirium was just really striking, I think really problematic. And it, um, like you mentioned, it really reflects a lot of our stereotypes and historical, um, historical biases. Uh, excited delirium is overwhelmingly um, a diagnosis given to young African-American men. And uh, I think there's a long historical legacy there for viewing those bodies as superhuman, more powerful, super predators. Um, and then I think there's a whole literature about the pain response and uh, black bodies and black skin and, and how they're viewed to have uh, higher pain tolerance. So, yeah, I think all that's integrated into this illness narrative. And I think if for a moment we could leave aside whether it's a proper disease or proper diagnosis or not, I think that the way that we are talking about it um, belies a lot of our uh, biases and and I think sets up for even worse interactions. Interesting question about how your particular article explaining excited delirium and the understanding of, of course, medicalization, um, a particular term uh, Dr. Irvin Zola in 1972 actually uh, created of uh, basically making things that are not medical, medical, right? For example, natural body causes like um, uh, male pattern baldness and things like um, uh, PMS or uh, when a woman gets older, they go through uh, different changes within their body, natural occurring 
um, changes like menopause. But because of that, we need to create a particular diagnosis for this natural phenomenon within the body. And then because of that, we need to take therapeutic interventions, whether it's through um, liquid medication or through actual uh, medication through uh, many different pharmaceutical companies, right? Medicalization, that is the crux of that. And it sounds like a lot of that is being adopted within this excited delirium uh, understanding within policing as well as uh, literally police officers diagnostically saying this person is having a medical issue. And I'm curious to see or to hear rather, do you think this justifies police outcomes in the way that they police? Um, Why or why not? Um, So, uh, yeah, I have two things I want to say there. I think I'll try to do them as I remember them. But the first thing is that I think you make a great point. This is an instance where police officers are giving a diagnosis. Typically, medical professionals are the ones who diagnose uh, depression, atherosclerosis, you know, multiple sclerosis, whatever. And it's an odd instance because um, 60 Minutes did a did a great piece about excited delirium near the end of 2020. And, you know, they talk about that idea that police officers, and it's it's partially their training, they're, they come to see, they show up to a call, and they you can hear it in the recordings, they say, oh, I think this guy has excited delirium, um, because they've come to view this certain constellation of behavior as this uh, term. But what's What's troubling about that is that then you have people who are law enforcement officers basically giving out a medico-psychiatric diagnosis and then um, trying to treat that with basically um, forceful submission. So, you know, I I made a point that for all the proponents of excited delirium, I'd, I'd, I think if it is real, which I, which I don't really think it is, but if it is, it's maybe even a bigger, it ought to be even a bigger tragedy for them that a real disease is not met with compassion, not met with medication, but it's met with force. And so for everyone who's out there saying, oh, excited delirium is real and I know it's real, then I think we ought to, if that's true, then it needs to be handled totally differently. So I think an an interesting point in that 60 Minutes um, piece I was talking about is so ketamine has sometimes been used. Some people who uh, are proponents of excited delirium have talked about using ketamine. But in that case, then, it's police officers who are making the call. Somebody has a diagnosis, a medical diagnosis, and then they instruct the EMTs to give ketamine on the spot. So the piece did a did a nice job of uh, interviewing one. I believe he was an EMT who said no, you know, I'm not a medical, I'm not a physician, but based on my training, I feel like this person um, doesn't have what you're describing. But the officers were sort of intimidating him, give ketamine, give ketamine, so that they could kind of sedate. Um, And, you know, they talk about an instance where somebody was supposed to have excited delirium, and the cops thought that's what it was, and he ended up just having like a DK, diabetic ketoacidosis. So, you know, like that's probably what happens when you're asking people who don't have a f- like a fully fleshed out medical background to be making a medical diagnosis. So I think that's an that, that's a fair point that 
and I think this happens a lot with policing in America is uh, there's a conflation of this like medical legal and medico psychiatric diagnoses with what the police are called upon to do. Um, so yeah, I think that was, that was my first point. My second point is, is about what you were talking about medical medicalization of everyday life. I think sometimes that's called disease mongering. Um, you know, I think that's an interesting point that uh, there's a lot of literature about disease mongering, like you, like you alluded to male pattern baldness or grief after loss of a loved one. You know, there's a lot of, uh, um, debate about that. I think that that's an interesting point. I think that there are probably arguments about the role of pharmaceutical companies and advertising um, to to the average American. But I actually think that excited delirium is kind of different because I think even in those other situations, it's sort of it's sort of like egocentric. Like the people who have those things think they have a problem. Maybe it's not a problem. Um, like you alluded to, but people are like, you know, I can't sleep that well. Can you give me a pill for that? Or my hair is falling out. I want something for that. And maybe that's a normal part of life, but I at least feel that there's some substrate of, of human interest. You could call it suffering or, you know, human interest in improvement of themselves. Whereas with excited delirium, as I know in my piece, it's not really like anybody is suffering from excited delirium and like, oh, like, please, like, cops, like, I want you to, you know, violently subdue me. So I think that there's kind of a distinction there that the the, the um, diseases that we want for ourselves and the diseases that others foist upon us. So, um, yeah, I, I just wanted to point that out. Interesting, because it, it it really interplays with uh, race and society, mixed with med- medicine as well as uh, justice systems and policing. It reminds me of back in the 19th or mid-19th century, rather, of this medical term by American physician, uh, Dr. Samuel A. Cartwright, na- uh, named dreptomania, meaning that this is a condition that enslaved Africans flee captivity, right? And obviously, when we look back in it, like we're looking back now in the 21st century, it's like, of course, they fled captivity because they're human beings and they wanted to be free. They wanted to be enslaved and chained like they're, you know, animals or um, in many cases being treated worse than animals, right? So it's interesting how this again, medicalization, but also the diagnosis of black bodies and brown bodies, as you're saying, throughout the history of our country is continued to be uh, diagnosed based off of uh, trying to fight for one's humanity, if you will, right? Trying to not feeling like you are less than a human being. And it's so interesting, as you're explaining this, how history repeats itself in one way or the other. Of course, in the 19th century, it's streptomania. Now in the 21st century, in your evaluation, it's excited delirium. And with all of these different um, elements within our conversation, I'm interested in what types of police education 
and police training do you suggest to be implemented to address these cycle behavioral issues in policing that you're mentioned in your article and of course you're mentioning in our conversation today? Yeah, that's a that's a great question and it's something I started to think about in the, in the last few months because I think you hear this thrown around a lot like we need more education, we need more cultural competency and so um, you know, the cynical part of me thinks that a lot of that is just, um, you know, lip service and, and what is that going to do? Um, but I guess sort of the optimistic part of me thinks that, yeah, if you had education that fundamentally changed how we viewed excited delirium or removed it from the curriculum, then it probably would change things. Excited delirium is, 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 you know, um, in the police manuals for something to look out for. I, I cite from like the Seattle Police Department, a police department in, in Indiana or someplace else in the Midwest. And there's a very, you know, robust description offered to them. It's well understood. Um, even in the um, audio of um, the Chauvin and George Floyd case, somebody in the background could be saying, heard saying, I think he's having excited delirium. Um, Taser International, the manufacturer of the stun gun, I think now it goes by the name Axon. You know, um, there's a great Reuters investigative piece about them and showed how Taser was involved in also promoting this diagnosis, educating directly to law enforcement, educating physicians. Um, And so there was definitely a peddling of that in the education and in the police classes and in their sort of pedagogy. So I think if anything, just rolling that back would do a lot of good. Um, Taking some of that out of there, acknowledging that there's a lot more of a question mark around this, bringing up the the relevance of getting real um, medical evaluation but yeah, I think that it's so problematic and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of vested interests in it that it would be nice to see some of that just removed from the curriculum. It seems like maybe there would be an element of psychosis among some of these people, that maybe there is some psychiatric element to the behavior or it may just be that they're physically struggling because they don't want to be arrested, of course. Um, I mean... Maybe education about psychiatric illness as well would, would, would be something beneficial because I'm assuming if somebody came in in a similar with some of those behavioral um, factors, they, you know, nobody in the hospital is going to be treating them the same way. I mean, some of it is related to how the police are handling this. Um, if they were in a, a, a hospital or somewhere, as you say, they would be being managed in a different, more humane way. Um, I certainly get your points about cultural competence. That's very soft speak, really, for um, this, and it certainly can't counteract all the the biases and the aggression and the fear that's kind of obviously generated potentially by reading about this and then coming across somebody who seems to be displaying um, that and then sort of the gut reaction maybe is kicking in. Um, so, I mean, I think 
learning more about you know vulnerable people and people maybe who are undergoing a psychiatric event would would be helpful for police um, generally. You mentioned about the taser and how there's been that conflict of interest um, and so as you say there's a lot of power behind kind of um, promoting this this concept of excited delirium and it's difficult to um, kind of remove it I suppose um, because it's it's sort of built into training already, so um, it, it's it's a, it's a tricky one to tackle. Yeah, it seems like it's harder to get a cat back in the bag, as we all know, um, and I, I I would like to just wave a magic wand and say, okay, people don't have this training and don't have this understanding of excited delirium, but I think. Um, as Kirk was mentioning, some of this is historical, some of this is um, prejudice that has been building for decades, if not centuries, right? Um, but yeah, I think that funneled through the prism of excited delirium, it's particularly dangerous. And I tie that back to your point about education about other um, psychiatric conditions, is that what what strikes me about excited delirium is that law enforcement is taught that these people are particularly strong, particularly invincible, and particularly in, in invulnerable to pain. So yeah, if somebody's having an acute psychotic episode, that's one thing. And I acknowledge that it's uh, hard to um, engage with them like we would normally. And uh, it's hard to get physically close to them or or really to speak to them but i think that what's added on with excited delirium and which has some of this um, racism baked in is the way that then they're dehumanized and almost the law enforcement is instigated to think like well we have to body slam this guy down now or we have to kneel on him from behind because otherwise there's no way to bring him to heal and and I think that it's dehumanizing, and I make this point in my piece, which is maybe kind of subtle, but I think that it's also how we can allow ourselves, or law enforcement and society in general, can allow ourselves to like be okay with such um, such overt shows of violence against other humans. I think that um, we we somehow have to come up with some story that's how they are, that's how they've always been, uh, they can't feel this, they deserve this. I think those are like Im- important lines in our psyche which um, make people capable of inflicting something um, so violent. Because I think otherwise um, uh, otherwise, it's, it's hard to watch, it's harder to imagine anybody carrying out. And I'm curious because when I'm hearing you in our discussion, it reminds me of a particular New York Times article. Um, actually, it's New York Times Magazine article by Linda Villarosa. All the listeners, you could check it out. It's um, out of August 14th, 2019. So really recent. And her article was talking about myths about physical racial differences were used to Again, this justification, right, justify slavery and are still believed by doctors today. And I'm curious 
to under to really uh, look at your perspective on how eugenics actually comes into play because understanding eugenics race and behavior and strength and intellect and all these other variables aren't separate but actually deeply in the understanding of eugenics are deeply related and interconnected and actually applicable in real life uh, i'm curious regarding this piece of scientific racism if you will do you see uh, correlations between that thinking back then and of course thinking regarding police in today regarding the characteristics you were just talking about yeah certainly um you know, I, I really enjoyed um, Linda Villarosa's piece, and I and I mentioned it at length in my current affairs article. That, yeah, I think there's certainly a historical, you know, line connecting the early scientific, quote unquote, scientific research showing that Black Americans have thicker skin, fewer nerve endings, weaker lungs. Um, you know, I think there's clearly uh, a precedent that is with us today when we talk about overwhelmingly black Americans who are dying of excited delirium and saying that they can't feel as much pain or, you know, I, I think that the lungs, it's never been explicitly um, mentioned in excited delirium to my knowledge, but it also ties in in a, in a really, you know, cruel, ironic way that so many people die due to asphyxiation and, um, you know, there's sort of this defense uh, that's that's offered that's like, well, if they didn't have asthma or some pre-existing condition or, you know, pre-existing weak lung, um, they wouldn't die. So it's, it's a kind of victim blaming that definitely draws from a historical understanding of black bodies. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely see commonalities there with how excited delirium is, is being applied. Um, so maybe I can come back to, obviously, this piece you wrote was really powerful. Um, I, I, you know, I thought it was brought in so many different elements. Um, what can you, have you thought of any ways you can, you know, have it uh, sort of use it for a medical journal to bring this to the medical community's attention? Because I know you, you mentioned there was the part at the article in the England Journal of Medicine that was written by the neurosurgeon who was the cousin of, of Daniel Prude. Um, and he doesn't exactly tackle the issue of excited delirium the way you do, um, but obviously speaks about racism and that kind of thing. Um, but I feel like if we could, um, you know, let the medical community know, you know, for example, not, you know, not to stand up in trials and sort of support this as a diagnosis, um, things like that, just as for the um, Derek Chauvin case and George Floyd, you know, it was really the medical person who the pulmonologist, who actually happened to be Irish and I'm Irish, who, who stood up and, you know, um, supported that he had died of asphyxiation. And that really brought, you know, a lot of it home. Obviously, you know, there was the video as well. But um, that really, I think, um, was a very strong message that he sent. Um, so is there any way of getting this out to the medical community so they can sort of rally around and not kind of hide behind this very vague pathophysiology and, 
symptom group that we know, you know, it doesn't really have, uh, you know, has been obviously not supported by the AMA and those other organisations that you mentioned. Are there any ideas about how we could kind of rally, get the medical community to rally behind behind this? Yeah, so I, I would start by saying that I think you're absolutely right that there needs to be something done by the medical community to speak out and to condemn excited delirium and the way it's being used. One of the most um, troubling things for me when I first started digging into this topic was reading, for example, that the AMA or the DSM doesn't acknowledge excited delirium, but that's not equivalent to going out and saying we don't think it's real either. And I think that, um, you know, there's a line that's been that that's been going around a lot during the Black Lives Matter protest, and uh, I think it's a good call to action. There's a Latin line, qui tacit consentit. I don't know if I'm, um, you know, saying that exactly right, but it's this idea that, you know, staying staying quiet is 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 equal equal to. Um, being a part of the problem and I think that we show our sort of implicit consent when we don't speak out so I definitely think that that's step one is we can't just sort of hide behind well we didn't acknowledge it um, so we're kind of the good guys in history so I think step one I think organizations need to speak out um, but yeah, how to do that? I'm I'm not really sure. There's so many disparate organizations in medicine. I think that, as we've just alluded to in our conversation, there's emergency physician groups and medical examiners, and then there's psychiatrists, and then there's all these subspecialties, and um, they all have various interests and sort of come at issues from certain philosophical positions. I will say, um, not not that it's uh, all on my shoulders, but I did submit something about this to New England Journal uh, a few months before the one came out by um, the neurosurgeon doctor in Rochester, and um, we were very pleased to get past the first editorial round, and but we did not make it past the reviewers, and one of the reviewers had a lot of um, you know um, harsh comment commentary about it and you know, was really a proponent of excited delirium and said that this is real and um, all the data supports it. So I think I think to take a step back from this issue, one of the tough things to do in medical scholarship is that if you want to write about a topic, typically the people who review it and who um, evaluate its validity and worth and um, you know, control the process to publication are often people who are experts on that topic or field. And if you're sort of coming in and um, calling for a renunciation of that entire uh, disease category, then you can definitely ruffle mm. some feathers. So not that this is, you know, my personal sour mm. grapes, but I think that if you were to write a paper about how unicorns weren't real, but you submitted it to, you had to get it published in the International Journal of Unicorn Studies, it would be pretty hard and um, you'd definitely be rebuked. So I think there's some of that going on that the gatekeepers, um, they believe in it. So I think that therefore it's incumbent on um, 
you know, the rest of the medical community to speak out. And um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy to see that the New England Journal did address this issue, although in a sort of minor capacity, I think there could be there could be more uh, and, and there is more that needs to be done. Well, I know we talked a lot about problems and issues and a quick uh, segue into my uh, question regarding solutions. I know that you mentioned earlier about uh, not really understanding or having any resources regarding racism and linked to that with, of course, pulmonology and lungs. Well, there's a great book. I feel like LeVar Burton here. Um, but there's a great book out there uh, called Breathing Race into the Machine. The Surprising Career of the Spirometer and from Plantation to Genetics by Lundy Braun. Uh, by Lundy Braun. And that's a great particular piece and resource that is phenomenal. Um, really great work. Uh, it was published by the University of Minnesota uh, Press. Uh, so that's just a nice little nugget for our listeners and for you to look into. Um, but regarding solutions, yeah, absolutely, uh, no problem. As we've talked about the complexities of excited delirium, um, and as we are hearing conversations about the relocation of monetary police resources, um, AKA defund the police, and of course the complexities within uh, that conversation, what social areas do, be, do you believe need more financial and professional support to assist police officers? Because the police officers, they only have so much amount of time and training, right? So what other mechanisms you think could be in place to help police officers to make their jobs a little bit easier? Yeah, I think I'm going to parrot another one of these sort of cliche, possibly hollow phrases, but more mental health support, um, as Amelia was talking about before. I, And I will be the first to admit I'm... I'm not a specialist or an expert at all about police funding and this kind of reform. I kind of just approached the piece from the question of excited delirium as a medical student, as a learner, um, you know, is this real or not? And, and what are the problems? But yeah, I think that rolling back, first of all, rolling back the presence of excited delirium in in police curricula I think B, having physicians speak out about it and reclaim this process of diagnosis and treatment. I think it's incumbent on physicians to go out and say, okay, we'll be the ones to make diagnoses, we'll be the ones to direct treatment and not leaving that to the police. Um, and then I think just a general thing that can be done in police training and outside is just making conflicts of interest clear, making stakeholders clear. Um, there's a lot of, there was a lot of education about excited delirium that ultimately, um, or was later known to be funded by people who had something to benefit from excited delirium being around in the courtroom. So I think when, when we hear expert testimony, when we go to conferences and courses, whether they be for physicians or police, understanding um, and, and having more resources dedicated to understanding where where that knowledge is coming from. And sometimes it doesn't just come out of a vacuum and out of the generosity of somebody's heart or their just a quest for scientific knowledge. And so I think, I think if I had to take a step back and make a really 
meta level change, it would be that is identifying who stakeholders are and uh, making conflicts of interest clear. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to talk about related to excited delirium? One thing I, w- I, I guess I want to mention is that I'm certainly not the first to bring it up. Um, I, I really read a lot and learned a lot from um, academic journals and popular um, press and there was a there was a lot out there. Um, I, I really owe a lot to the journalists who did the legwork before me, and um, in some regard, that's that's heartwarming to know that there's other people out there who 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 recognize that this is wrong and have been working to fix it. But it's also disheartening because as I went back to, you know, Slate magazine, Salon, Mother Jones, NPR, Washington Post, like some of these articles. We're talking about excited delirium like 10, 15 years ago, and there were pieces in newspapers, um, such and such person died, and the police called it excited delirium. What's that? And then they'd like interview, you know, one psychiatrist or one doctor who'd be like, excited delirium isn't real, and then they didn't interview somebody else who's like, it is real. And then, and then they just kind of like end the piece. And so I guess I just want to say that I don't, think that any of this is new as people who've been following systemic racism or police brutality will be the first to tell you i don't think any of this is new i think that there have been people who've been trying to bring it to light for a long time um but if if i could end on one thing that i thought i was trying to bring to the conversation and that i that i hoped was a new angle was maybe rather than getting mired in this conversation of here's one specialist who says it's real who's an, here's another specialist who says it's not is why don't we take a step back and see how it's being applied because i think that people on both sides of the issue can acknowledge that this um, so-called disease is being applied in a in a really discriminatory um, very aggressive very unfair manner and um I think that's the that's the least we owe to the people who who are supposed to have excited delirium, is just an open discussion about that. Um, and yeah, I'd, I'd call for more research too for those who claim that it's real. I think it would be a great travesty if it was and we were treating it this way. So that's fine if they want to offer evidence, but throughout the process, just making um, funding and stakeholders and conflicts of interest clear too. So a particular question I had here, and I just lost my question sheet. There you go. Um, so my last question uh, to uh, before you, Arjun, is do you think policing and the social determinants of health care are connected? If so, in what ways? It would seem to me that policing, the neighborhoods that are policed, the way that they're policed, the regularity with which they're policed, the amount of force that's brought to bear in policing um, would be a strong social determinant. I think um, excited delirium is a, is a great example. I think that it's disproportionately used for people who people of color, particularly men, particularly those who are young, um, particularly people who use drugs um, and I think that the way that the police interact with those constituencies um, is probably totally different than the way they interact with others. 
So, yeah, I, th- I think they're related. I I can't speak to it more than just about excited delirium, but I think that um, there's both this element of like extra aggression and also a lot of um, negligence for some of these communities, which uh, definitely results in uh, worse outcomes and uh, worse um, health health behavior. I'll just give one anecdote, which is tied to sort of the, the history of excited delirium, and I, and I write about it a little bit. Um, when excited delirium kind of was first coming into the scene in the 80s and early 90s, the medical examiner pathologist in Miami wanted to say that a bunch of women who had all been sex workers and were all black They'd all died under sort of mysterious circumstances, and he said they all died from excited delirium. And he did, like, autopsies and, I guess, analyzed the brains and um, histologically, and based on his calculation, said they all died from excited delirium, and it was something like 30 people. Um, Even though there was a lot of evidence pointing toward sexual violence, uh, rape, and murder... So, you know, a few years later, they caught the serial killer who admitted to killing all these sex workers. And I think it's a good example. I mean, it's not exactly policing, I guess. It's sort of the medico-legal intersection with with how we think about people and how we even think about their death and the, the care we take to investigate it. And I think it was it's a, it's a great example of how, in that case they were ready to jump to something like excited delirium, which put a lot of blame on the on the individual and not even investigate what others would say is probably the really obvious um, answer there, assault, murder. Um, and it looks really absurd in hindsight, um, or I'd, I'd hope it does to, to most of the listeners, but I think that sort of thing is happening all the time um, to, to varying degrees. Thank you for listening to another great conversation on bioethics in the margins. This podcast is hosted by Amelia Barwise and Kirk Johnson. Our producer is Elizabeth Chung. Our editor is Nicole Strand. Our theme music was written and produced by Pablo Cuartas. And we are grateful for the assistance of Wendy Jung and Benjamin Foster. Join us again next time.